0: who's running a course as part of the continuing education program at sydney university on love sex and the middle ages joins us on beyond midnight to discuss how much we've really changed thanks for your time carol that's fine fiona now first of all what period is covered by the middle ages
1: well it depends normally it's broken into two periods the early middle ages which is basically 500 to 1000 and then the high middle ages which is 1000 to 1500 but in running this course I think I will be taking a little bit of leeway and actually borrowing stories and case histories from basically the entire millennium between 500 and 1500.
0: Well I can't wait to get into some of these anecdotes but people lament the breaking down of the cozy nuclear family in the 1990s what were families and family values like in this broad area that was the Middle Ages?
1: Well, I think that's really important to remember is that the family is a very powerful concept. And people have tried to make us believe that the family is certain things, certain stable, permanent things throughout history, and that that basically is not true. And the nuclear family that people seem to be so sorry about the absence of nowadays really didn't exist for very long, and in fact for a lot of people it only ever existed in their imagination or in a sort of manipulation of of the evidence. And the family in the Middle Ages was quite as varied as any family we might encounter now in the late 20th century. Um, It comprised uh, mothers, fathers, children, sometimes single parents grandparents in manor house and farming communities servants and friends and relatives who lived in a very close community sometimes even the same buildings Um, it comprised the mentally retarded the senile concepts which were not really acknowledged by the Middle Ages but such people existed and needed to be taken care of it comprised lovers and friends and mistresses and illegitimate brothers and sisters there was really big it sounds
0: like everyone had a commune
1: well medieval communities were like communes not necessarily so much the urban communities because in a a prosperous town the mercantile quarter would all live in fairly substantial mansions you know family groups but with servants accompanying them and indeed also uh, apprentices and journeymen in whatever trade was involved and quite often they ended up married to their bosses' daughters, so it was sort of quite keeping it in the family. But the rural communities, when you look at um there are some very famous manor sites you know one of the obvious ones that's always studied in England is a place called Warren Percy, which is an occupied manorial site from the late Roman period and right through the middle ages. Um, sometimes a manor might comprise just one very substantial farmhouse dwelling and some you know, outbuildings, and everybody lived in it. And that includes all the animals as well as the humans. And, of course, you needed them because they kept you warm in winter. So all of the undercroft of the house was filled with the cattle or sheep and everybody else was living around.
0: Are we talking strictly Europe in your studies?
1: Yes, we are. I mean, medieval is a concept which has been extended to uh, other cultures. The most obvious ones, I think, are... Uh, cultures outside of Europe, but in touch, like Islam, because it has particular medieval characteristics. And there was and
0: trading between the two areas. That's right, areas. and
1: communication, and Judaism fits the same pattern, and I do intend in my course to refer, in some case studies, to Jewish and Islamic women, because we have quite a lot of information about them. The other societies that are commonly referred to as having medieval mode or a feudal mode are um, Japan under the Shogunates, and China because there were certain aspects of governmental and landholding policy that matched European developments at the same time. But that takes the course sort of everywhere, and I only have... A little too broad. ...12 weeks, so (laughs) I think we'll be looking principally at European material. And I guess even in that, try to get a representative smatter, you know, in Australia medieval history to most Australians is British history and secondarily French history and then when you look around medieval Europe there's also maybe Italy, France and Germany get a look in but actually And occasionally
0: you think about the Vikings.
1: Oh yes but only because they harry them of course and cause a lot of trouble and rapine and pillage and all that sort of stuff. But in fact there's a lot of medieval evidence that we have especially from Eastern Europe that's very interesting as well and I've got some material certainly from Russian, Polish Czechoslovakian history that I hope to bring in.
0: Oh, Terrific. Now the pill changed the world
1: forever in the 1960s. I was born the year it went on the market. I think it's a wonderful thing.
0: (laughs) Yes, I just got in there in 1962. I I think otherwise maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. But uh, what were women using for contraception in the Middle Ages?
1: Well, the control of fertility is absolutely fundamental to liberty of any kind a woman. There are only two alternatives. If you don't control your fertility, there's celibacy or there's being at the mercy of the vagaries of the body. Now, both of those had their expressions in the Middle Ages. There were women who simply had child after child after child until it killed them. The most obvious example would be someone like Mary de Boone, who was the mother of um, Henry V. She had a first child at 11 was dead at 24, and she'd had, I think, 13 oh. in that time. And indeed, interestingly, she might not have actually resented it too much because she was a member of a happy marriage. And that was what happened. That was a blessed marriage. Children. We're going to
0: talk about the shorter lifespans and how the people of the Middle Ages fitted so much into their short lives. But uh, before we get into to that, let's talk about the courtship process before we need to think about, uh, you know, the Controlling the fertility. Now, Mm. uh, did they actually have any methods?
1: Courtship processes change depending on what class you belong to, of course. Uh, It's distressingly true that many of the aristocratic women, and especially those of the absolutely top levels of society, royal families, had little or no control over who they married. They were bartered diplomatically by their fathers, by their uncles and guardians, to the best possible bidder, in order to make certain political alliances, military alliances. Sometimes those relationships turned out to be quite successful, despite their very practical uh, commercial commencement. Other times they were a disaster and the most bitter and miserable uh, warpings of lives resulted. Poorer people sometimes had a better situation, but there were risks associated with both groups. For example, Zvirazi in his book Life, Marriage and Death in a medieval village, he's a very interesting and distinguished scholar, points out that a poor girl, her dad had to pay the manorial lord a price if she wanted to get married. It was a big price. A lot of poor fathers on the land couldn't afford it. So the girl might decide to do a bargain with her swain, her boyfriend, they might decide to commence an affair, run the risk of therefore losing honour and character, and then when she was detected to be pregnant, he would get a bargain basement wife because no dowry was paid for shop style goods, right. and all her dad would have to do was pay a little tax called merchet, which was for the loss of the honour of his daughter. And it was about a tenth of a marriage price. So you might do that kind of deal if you trusted your boyfriend. But if your boyfriend used you, you would end up the town prostitute because you'd lost your honour, you'd had a child out of wedlock, you'd failed to secure a husband, and what else was there for you to do?
0: Oh, I'm so glad I'm living in the 90s at this particular point. What about relationship breakdowns? Uh, uh, We have figures of what one in four marriages not working. Are the same things that tear us apart in the 90s, the same that uh, broke down marriages in the middle ages or were marriages not allowed to come falling down
1: it's really funny i was actually talking about this today uh, with a friend and i read somewhere in a a tabloid with a glaring headline that the reason that marriages and long-term de facto relationships break down nowadays are threefold in particular the shock of the arrival of children after you've established a lifestyle and just can't believe what happens after you produce the child uh in-laws and money problems. Um, I think that everybody assumes nowadays that you know the person you marry or live with. And if they turn out to be not what you wanted or expected, even those more conservative souls feel that they're able, they are justified in some ex- to some extent in attempting to extricate themselves from the situation. In the Middle Ages, wealthy people got out of marriage all the time. Basically because the aristocracy was a very limited pool of people, most of them had to get papal dispensations to marry in the first place because they were actually quite closely related and they contravened therefore church incest laws because incest was defined very broadly to mean lots and lots of cousins that, you know, couldn't marry. And so of course a couple who'd sought a dispensation and married and then either failed to produce an heir or had some distinct falling out over property or politics or whatever, could equally happily apply to the Vatican and say, we're terribly sorry, it was a terrible sin, we shouldn't have married, it was a mistake, can you get us out of it please? And the most famous case, all my students know this case inside out, is of course the marriage of Eleanor of Aquitaine and Louis VII of France, they were married for 15 years, no male heir two daughters daughters in France Salic law said no woman could inherit so Louis had to have another wife he had to have another chance so they went to the Pope and of course Eleanor was sick to death of him and had already sued, uh, begged him for a divorce in the, in the last
0: did hour. either have um, mistresses or partners? Louis not
1: definitely he was a very holy and religious gentleman Eleanor quite likely, in fact one of the reasons why they originally came to request a divorce was that they'd gone on crusade, on the second crusade, to the relief of Raymond of Antioch who was actually Eleanor's uncle and there were rumours as soon as they arrived in Antioch of an affair beginning between Eleanor and her uncle. Um, We don't know if that ever happened, there are texts reporting such rumours, it may just be that it was a scandal you know, that was concocted.
0: Were they getting divorces or papal annulments?
1: Interestingly, it virtually meant the same thing in the Middle Ages because an annulment was really what you got because divorce, pure and simple, wouldn't have entitled you to marry again. But it was often referred to quite loosely in the text as a divorce, annulment, ending of marriage, whatever, you know.
0: I'm talking to Carol Cusack, who's running a course as part of the continuing education program at Sydney University on love, sex and the Middle Ages. And Carol was telling me there's still a few places for the two courses if you are in Sydney. And this is fascinating you as it's fascinating me this morning. Um, What about... A problem that we've seen this week in America where the American public has been absolutely shocked by the case of Susan Smith who drowned her two sons in South Carolina Um, apparently though this isn't so unusual this infant infanticide has been uh, going on for ages
1: but you see this is interesting this is where what I was saying earlier about the family the, the the sort of image of the the nuclear family the Brady Bunch type family. Hi, honey, I'm home. Smiling wife, beautiful food in kitchen, glossy, shiny haired children. So staggering. that's not going to last. Hello, Daddy. Well, you see, I think it's one of the greatest of deceptions. The veneer of civilization is very, very thin. We, in the late 20th century, in First World, in relatively affluent countries, have been sold a bit of a myth that everybody's in control and everything's really good and everybody's not a savage and is not, you know, sort of at the absolute edge of existence. Everybody's got this coating of civilization. Um, the thing that surprises me about the Susan Smith case is how 20th century people can be so blind. so so find it shocking it's not shocking it's normal women have always killed their children not necessarily for what we might consider explicable reasons fathers have also beaten their wives and killed their children serial killers are not new there are medieval serial killers and some of them the stories of which are quite as nasty as anything you would discover from Jeffrey Dahmer Um, to kill a child is often a sign of depression, anxiety, loneliness, being cut off from supports, etc., etc.
0: So, really, we haven't changed that much, but some of the techniques that we have, as you were talking about the contraception before, and that poor woman that started breeding at 11 and died at 24 and had 13 on the way, not many of those probably got through infancy, though, did they?
1: No, that's another thing. Children did die. But I mean, the, the real difference is are that we've got the choice if we want to but often if we make the wrong choice or slide into a situation where there's a certain tragic inevitability our reactions will be virtually identical to the reactions of people a thousand years ago and not only medieval people people in the ancient world people two thousand years ago would have reacted in the same way um you know what we have going for us is we're better nourished we have more leisure time, we can read, most people can read, we can control our fertility to some extent but then there are people all over the face of the world who can't do that, you know, it's limited to a very privileged small circle. You asked me what women did for contraception in the Middle Ages. Um, Roman women, in the classical world, most common technique was woman on top intercourse since conception slightly impeded and um, whatever is the ancient equivalent of knitting needle abortions Um, not very pleasant but Roman women were very very uh, promiscuous? no they were cool about the fact that they might have to get rid of a few kids in their life I mean they had to have heirs but the aristocratic women had to have heirs for their husbands and the families but it might be a choice that if you had two children you wouldn't want any more medieval people didn't resort as often to techniques of abortion, though we do have some medications, uh, herbal medications that are very likely to induce that kind of of, uh, physical distress so much so that it would dislodge a fetus. Um, Vinegar douches, uh, various kinds of uh, suppositories of also vinegars, those sorts of things which act as a spermicide essentially, and infanticide, the most common modes of of, uh, controlling. On the, of your family.
0: on the reverse side, we know now that one in ten families are going to have, uh, or one in ten couples are going to have problems conceiving. Mm. Were there the same problems then and nothing that they could do? And was there any social stigma in not being able to produce children?
1: That's quite interesting. Um, children were a blessing from God. You know, be fruitful and multiply. It's in Genesis. It's what you have to do. Um, there were couples who were infertile. Um, I don't know a great deal about the causes of said infertility because obviously their ability to do internal surgery is almost nil. So the complexities of female infertility uh, were quite unknown to medieval doctors. There were other things that caused infertility. For example, Anne Neville, the wife of Richard III, they had one child, a boy called Edward of Midlam. Who was about nine when he died, Uh, and even though when he died his parents were only 32 and 30, it was very clear that there'd been no other conceptions, there'd been no other pregnancies, there would be no other children. And the most commonly cited reason for that was that Anne had a wasting disease, probably tuberculosis, which means that the body, after a while, and and you see this with anorexics conserves its um, resources and so there's no menstruation there's no ovulation the body just shuts down and so there are a lot of women in the Middle Ages who suffered from illnesses like TB and were therefore infertile just because they were so weak
0: you mentioned that child that lived to nine what about childhood in, in many ways um, it's been extended a lot for people in the western world in the in 20th century, staying at home longer, studying longer what was childhood like in the middle ages if you got through it?
1: Well, I mean, Hobbes on life poor, nasty, brutish and short is not sort of too far wrong for anybody in the middle ages. For a child again, it's it's your station in life that determines things. Aristocratic children uh, we know from the education of Edward, the, the uncrowned king Edward V, the son of Edward IV, that by the time he was four or five, he was learning swordplay, Greek, Latin, his letters. I mean, the child would have been absolutely exhausted up at about seven o'clock in the morning, work all day, exercises, such are appropriate to his age, as in the letter. But, you know, what they expected was fairly, fairly tough. Um, what about the
0: serfs? Well, Did they have any childhood or were they out, you know, ploughing ground? and?
1: As soon as they could walk and talk and feed themselves, essentially, you know, toddlers, four, three, maybe, they were doing little jobs. I mean, this is the interesting thing about the nuclear family, of course. Peasant mother would hardly have ever raised children. That would be the job of the grandmothers or the elderly great aunts, the older women of the house no longer able to do productive labor in the field, those sorts of things where, where working on the farm is just too heavy for them and they stay at home they prepare family meals and look after the children. Um, situation in fact that was the case Right up till the great war in this century, that if you were a poor woman, you worked in the factory or the field and your children were looked after by other people. If you were a rich woman, your children were looked after by nurses. So, in fact, the doctor Benjamin Spock ideal of the poor middle class mother trapped at home alone with her infants every day is so alien, you know, so strange. In a historical context, that it's astonishing that so many women nowadays, uh, friends of my own, are just racked with guilt for leaving their children in childcare centres and with nannies and nurses. And I keep telling them, you know, didn't harm. Most of the people across the span of history don't see why it should harm yours.
0: What about the life expectancies? Was there not much time to do the things you wanted to in your life? Were have you noticed in any of your studies? frustration in the fact that someone lived only to twenty-four or nine or whatever.
1: Not frustration because again something that we cannot conceive easily is how subjected to the vagaries of the theological universe the medieval world was. God and heaven and supernatural happenings and meanings were sought everywhere. A person lived as long as he or she was ordained by the Almighty to live. This didn't mean that people didn't grieve when people died, and especially when people died untimely. For example, when Edward of Middlemaged aged nine, died, Richard III and Anne Neville were absolutely distraught. Now, obviously, they lost their only child, but in very practical, dynastic sense, they lost their heir, and they knew they couldn't have another one. So that was a very important purpose. Some people lived vast ages. Eleanor of Aquitaine lived to 83, had 10 children, survived imprisonment, and at the age of 80, rode across the Pyrenees to fetch her grandson a um bride. How amazing. I mean, it's just unbelievable to think of this, but she did.
0: It- it's taking me into another world and quite a fascinating one. Recently, I watched the movie Mel Gibson's Braveheart, and uh, I William was <laughs> <Wallace>. <laughs> I was quite shocked at uh, what the English would do to the Scottish people, and, and particularly one scene. And I don't know if it has any real historical fact behind it, where the um, just after marriage, the
1: Oh, the droit de seigneur, yeah. where the lord has the right to sleep with the bride on the on the wedding night, that was still in operation in the 18th century.
0: So it really happened yes, in the it Middle really Ages. Yes, really
1: happened. Yes, because because one of the things that defines medieval society is it's not just the unfree and the peasants and the serfs who are owned. Everybody's owned. Every particular aristocrat owes an oath to somebody else to offer them protection. There's this tightly packed pyramid where somebody always offers to protect you and you offer to pay them in some way. And it's a very sort of distressing thing for us to cope with again because we've been brought up with this idea of individual freedom and people making their choices and any form of slavery being abhorrent ever since at least the American Civil War.
0: So was that law because of the promiscuity that uh, people... You know, that the the lords wanted to have lots of sex with many different partners, that they created a law law like that, or is it more to do with uh, just putting people in their places?
1: It's to do with property. People are your property. You have to show them that they're your property. And so you exercise rights over them. And, I mean, that's how it was. It didn't always happen. Some lords were known for their virtues and their restraint, not just in terms of sexuality, it's interesting that for us virtue so often is limited to the sexual area, but there were many lords who were kind, supportive, generous to their vassals and peasants, uh, who never caused any abuse. But there were others who just loved cruelty, and I mentioned earlier, that there were medieval serial killers. Well, I don't know if you saw St. Joan that the Sydney Theatre Company just put on.
0: No, I haven't, but I've read a lot about her. Well,
1: one of the characters in it is de Ray, who is the most famous of all medieval serial killers. And he actually was the Marshal of France during Joan of Arc's period of influence. He was not Uh, discovered and tried till some ten years later. But what he did was entice away attractive peasant children, generally boys, from their parents. France was in great disarray due to the war. Many people were very hungry. Um, If a handsome, wealthy gentleman um, offered your child a birth in his castle and wages and took them away from you, you wouldn't think to see them again because you couldn't write and they might go five miles away a lot of people never went five miles in their life. And eventually what happened was that so many children disappeared that eventually people went looking. They found thirty, forty, fifty bodies in castles, brutally killed, sexually molested. That was what he did. There's also a fellow called John Tiptoft, the Butcher Earl of Worcester, who never was like, they're not a criminal, but he liked executing people.
0: Carol Cusack, it is so fascinating. Love, sex and the family in the Middle Ages. Thank you for your time.
1: It's great fun. Thank you.